Bedtime story reading. Yeah. What was it tonight? Herodotus? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Aesop's Fables. Yeah. Yeah, we only do Greek stuff. <laughs> right. Harry McClary from that? Donaldson's Dairy. Ah. Hmm. What's, what's all this new sort of can opening? I don't, I don't feel I can speak to you sober. While he does that, welcome to North v South, the podcast that is and isn't about design, but maybe just about beer. This is episode 33, and I'm Jonathan Elliman, and that drinking person on the other end of the line is Rob Turpin. We should do an episode just about beer. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So are you well, John? I'm okay. Yeah, I'm all right. <clears throat> You? How, how are you feeling? You- well, um, I've been suffering for toothache from uh, toothache for a week, as you know, um, but that's kind of abated a bit. Um, I've got to go have some wisdom teeth out at some point, um, so that's fun. Um, and I've just about recovered from our walk. Well, I say just about recovered. I haven't recovered from our walk at all. Have you? <laughs> no. No, I uh, I've still got quite a few aches and pains and um, <laughs> two cracking blisters. Really, isn't it meant to be the Southerners who are big wusses? <laughs> it's the uh, it's the the scary pace you set on that last uh, that last third, <laughs> yomping your way to Winchester. I like a yomp. Yeah, yeah. We went for a walk, didn't we? We did. It was good, good as well. I took a day off away from the desk. And um, yeah, we had a really nice walk. It was about, what was it, about eight, nine miles? Yeah, nine and a bit, I think. Through the Itchen Valley. Which is very, very beautiful. Mm. It's sort of um, classic fly fishing, shallow river, isn't it? And, to- and uh, totally clear, crystal clear. Yeah, it was fantastic. Incredibly picturesque and beautiful. <clears throat> and a, an absolutely cracking day as well. Yeah, took in a couple of churches. Um, didn't see too nice much book. wildlife. No, we didn't. Swans and ducks, but Had a fo- lots exotic. of lovely houses. Yeah, and uh, and a really good pub lunch. Mm. Good pub lunch, cracking pint, good chips. And then, uh, yeah, it was all good, wasn't it? Yeah. Really uh, picked a good one there. Yeah. And then walked into Winchester. And sat, yeah. in, sat in a uh, coffee shop full of um, <laughs> would, would-be hipsters. You can't escape, can you? you? You know, wherever you are in Shoreditch or Winchester, you go into a coffee shop and everyone's there on their MacBooks, including the one guy who was uh, in the middle of a Skype conversation with a client or a supplier or something, kind of loudly waffling away. Um, which is a bit of a dickish thing to do, isn't it? I think, yeah. You know, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I can't really get my head around that, why you would why you would do that at all. So what else has been going on? Well, uh, I've just been drawing, uh, predominantly. Um, drawing, toothache, walk, pretty much it for me this week. So uh, the first half of the week was... Or kind of over the last since the last uh, podcast, it's been codeine and whiskey. Um, yeah, the kind of um, overriding thing has just been the toothache, which has been hideous. I'm not a fan of dentists, which is why I've got toothache. But um, so that was um, getting to me a bit. Not just the pain, but the thought of having to go to a dentist. <laughs> But it's all sorted now. Well, it's not sorted at all. I have to go to hospital to get it sorted. But Are they taking wisdom teeth out? They are. Uh-huh. But it's fine. I'll be unconscious. <clears throat> so they, don't, they, don't, they don't do that so much anymore, do they? They tend to take no, out the teeth around it. Yeah. But you've got bad ones because you haven't been. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But that's fine. I, like I said, you know, as long as I'm unconscious, I don't really care. Um, what about you? Uh, I've been relatively quiet. Um, I'm writing 
uh, I'm writing some brand guidelines at the moment and it's taken me all week to write a draft that would normally take me about two hours. Uh, I am suffering from, uh, I don't know, what, what would you call it? On, <laughs> ennui? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Stasis? I don't know. I, um, <clears throat> I've just, I think I've just done such a long st- stint of work. I'm absolutely shattered. Um, so... I've uh, and I've got to go to Leeds tomorrow. I've got to fly to Leeds at five. I've got to leave here at five. <sighs> Man, yeah, that doesn't sound that appealing. So yeah, enthusiasm levels are low. <laughs> <laughs> and what time will you get back? From Anxiety on, uh, levels high. <laughs> I'm like B. A. Baracus. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't getting on no plane. Yeah, I don't like planes. Um, what time am I flying? No, what time are you back tomorrow? Night? Oh, uh, I think I'm I'm meant to be flying seven thirty, but the British Airways have got a lovely red notice underneath the plane saying this plane is always late. <laughs> <laughs> That's honestly, isn't it? Yeah, it is honest. At least, I yeah. why. So, I don't know. Maybe it's just who flies out of Leeds Bradford Airport on a Friday night. Yeah, I don't know. Or so maybe, every, maybe everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. So you're not going to get home till sort of eleven or something. No, stupid, I think so. Well, we're an hour and a bit away from the from uh, Heathrow here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it'll be a long day. Good luck. <laughs> Are you? Uh, have you got a beer there to uh, to soothe your anxieties have, this evening? I have. I've got a tinny. Um, what have you got? Jessica bought me a, a tinny. Hearing your one last week, it's um, it's Swedish, and it's B B seventeen. I see. Yeah. A backyard, I had Norwegian a, last week, didn't I? A, yeah, we 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 gone Scandi. Uh, it's a backyard brew, so Ooh. I don't I don't want to know the methodology for that one. <laughs> but apparently, it's made by Daniel, and it's a dry hopped pilsner. I see. Well, good. Yeah. Is it good? Uh, hang on. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. I've got <laughs> I've got a I've got an IPA called Little Heaven. From the Two Roads Brewery in Stratford. All right, um, and it's all right. It's Strat- sort of Stratford, t- London, or Stratford. I think Maiden. so. I think so. It's Stratford, London, right. um, and it's uh, it's all right. It's got a typical IPA. Yeah, that's what this one is. I'd call that. It's not. It, it's very cold, so it's hard mm. to taste it. <clears throat> I know we're doing beer reviews right at the beginning of the show already. Well, it's oh, well maybe that's what it's it? down to. <laughs> Slow week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, have you uh, have you spotted anything uh, out and about this week? Any news type uh, events in well, your in your world? It's a bit slow, but I think something that um, you know, always looking at trying to organise ourselves. Um, there's been a lot of talk this week. I'd, I thought I'd start off with: the, um, Are we moving into a new type of design? Or is is our national situation triggering something in designers because there seems to be quite a lot of uh, anger out there at the moment <laughs> not anger just tiredness with the whole what i call the plinky plonky music brigade and yeah. this this is um a part of the epidemic it's called guten tag and it's via kai cruz's um, modern desktop is yeah. it called his it's like, newsletter yeah it's a newsletter that you can get every week i used to get his magazine but it just got too lifestyley for me um is that the off, <clears> off screen yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just, you know, there's too many photos of people on their bikes or, mm. you know, of their desks. And it's precisely what other people have been complaining about today. But this is a stamp and it, it's quite simple. It's just a wooden stamp um, that you can stamp on a piece of paper and it's got uh, divisions on it that you can then create like a little sketch of your day. Um, yeah. and so it's, compre- a, it's like a little blank clock really isn't it yeah but it, but it's slightly different in the fact that it's compressed time so it compresses all the hours you might not be working into a small area so that you've got more room for the for the other bits okay. but it's quite sweet um yeah i quite like that yeah i think I mean, it, there's a there's an absolute you know preponderance of sort of to-do apps and things like that aren't they and it's quite nice to have something that's quite analog and simple and quick that yeah. you can you can use in your own way. Yeah, I use, I use, um, I just use a piece. I've just got a list. So, and I just yeah. cross off the list and then rewrite the list the next day. That's how I, <laughs> that's how my one works. I've got a dry white board on the wall and that's yeah. it. Um, but I don't, I, I, these apps are just, I spend a life blooming updating them all. 
Yeah. And then you forget to update one and it just becomes redundant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lists as well. Yeah. It's like Merlin Mann says about, you know, managing your calendar is to have, you know, you only have critical events on your calendar, only things that you're actually going to, you know, a hundred percent do. So whether yeah. that's doctor's appointments, dentists, school pickups, whatever, meetings with clients, those things go in your, in your calendar. Um, and it's much easier to manage them. Well, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it's pretty pretty simple. What about you? What have you seen yeah. anything? <clears throat> uh, what have I seen? Um, well, there's a bit of news, which I think everybody's probably seen, um, which is uh, it was in an article in The Guardian, and it's man takes 11 hours to boil kettle. Did you see this? Yeah, I, I saw it um, in a feed thing. Yeah, and I only actually read it today. Um, so it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek because so it's uh, basically the story of a man called Mark Rittman who wanted a cup of tea and it took him 11 hours to make it because he was using his uh, Wi-Fi-enabled kettle and he wanted to activate it using voice recognition. Um. And it's a long story, really, about how his how the kettle doesn't come with the software that allows it to work with different kind of Wi-Fi routers, and it doesn't work with his Amazon Echo. Um, so it's a bit, you know, he's he's sort of going round the houses really to make his cup of tea. Uh, he, <laughs> you know, he he could have used it in a in a much simpler way but he decided to use it using his amazon echo and he had to i think he had to write bits of code and you know hack certain things and reinstall stuff so eventually it took him 11 hours to use his amazon echo to turn his kettle on um and i think it's it's a you know obviously it's you know um a sort of slightly uh, a, a bit of a parody of it but it's kind of what the whole world will look like when uh, everything is internet enabled and wi-fi enabled and semi-sentient like your oven <laughs> well i uh yeah this is also uh something that we've talked about in the past isn't it of um how we're trying to run before we can walk and i, I think this is a really good analogy of that technology um i think that the amazon echo is sounds a lot more intelligent than say siri um siri is a dumb animal at the moment isn't it and mm. doesn't work very well for me for my accent uh d- does it work right for yours sorry can you say that again i couldn't understand the word to say. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, it seems to work fine. Yeah, uh, for me, I think I mumble. Um, oh well, and I've got uh, yeah, I've got short vowels, haven't I? So um, I don't know. It just does. It just doesn't. It doesn't get me. And you can't. It, it's dumb. So you can't say. Um, so for example, if you said, you know, when's the next cricket match on? And it uh, the next England cricket match, and it would it might be actually it wouldn't do it for cricket match, would it? But it would no. say you know the next cricket match is X in in a week's time. Oh, can you um can you put a reminder in my thing to watch the next cricket match? And it would then say what is the cricket match you're talking about? It, it yeah. can't do context at the moment. I think that Alexa can can it is it which is Alexa? Is that the Android or is that the Microsoft? Oh yeah, Android. What's it? What's the product called? Uh, no, Amazon. What's What's the Amazon thing called? Oh, the Amazon Echo. Echo. Yeah. And then the, the little extenders are called dots. Is that right? I'm not sure. Oh, oh I don't know. Right. Uh, but yeah, it seems to be that, yeah, that there the connections aren't there, are they? The technology's there, but the connections aren't. Yeah, and then, and then obviously when he gets this sorted, he'll probably find that it's no longer supported. You know, his kettle's no longer supported by his Amazon Echo and he'll have to buy a new one that conforms to new standards. <laughs> Which is the other uh, worry, isn't it, with buying into these systems? Yeah. Well, um, I guess like Philips Hue, is it? The lights. Yes. Um, again, I'm talking about things I know nothing about, but I'm guessing that if the system that runs that changes dramatically you're gonna, and you've got older light bulbs, they're not going to work, are they? Potentially. I guess so, yeah. I mean... I don't know if there's a shared sort of ecosystem between the different companies that provide 
technology that works with them. I know Apple and their HomeKit work with them, don't they? I assume there are other systems, but I don't know if they all work off a, a you know one kind of bit of tech. I don't know. Mm. Do you, you haven't got you haven't hewed your house out then? No. Yeah. Surprised. Uh, it's a new site, and um, it was introduced to me on uh, via some of your mates. Um, mm-hmm. It's called um, Open for Ideas, and it's a website that's. Um, it sounds like it's. it's a, I've only skimmed through it, and I've read a couple of the um, articles by um, Simon White, and also the introduction by uh, the guy who's running it called Dave Burse. Um, yeah. And it's a site about about fostering creativity. Um, it's you know that the old adage that industry, uh, they you know they're what is what is the most powerful asset out there in your organisation. And um, I think it was the head of IBM is quoted in this as, as saying uh, that you you know it's creativity above above anything else. And it's how to in gender creativity in your organization and uh and how to um how to work creatively really so i think it could be uh, a fascinating website to follow and see see how it develops um i i'm not sure i think is it a labor of love or a business i'm not i'm not really sure at the moment yeah it's quite interesting because this is the sort of thing that simon white does a lot he works with businesses and you know uh, to kind of uh facilitate the, the way they work with regard to pitches and briefs and specific projects and i think a lot of his thing is you know kind of eking out every bit of creativity and uh productivity um and i i don't really understand how he does it or or what he does so it'll be interesting to read a bit more on this this site to see a a bit of an insight into that how that kind of thing can work and exist because it's it kind of seems like Greek to me how you can, I don't know, use uh, kind of uh, ideas and methods to conjure creativity out of a non-creative team. So, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> The, 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 there's an introductory um, welcome from the editor video that I watched and um, he's, 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 he comes across really well and um, sounds like a lovely bloke. So I w- wish him all the best with the, with the sign. Mm. I'm definitely going to dip back into it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of um, Alain de Botton is, yeah. what's his website called? Um, oh, I don't know. Uh, he's got like an organization that's quite similar to this that kind of talks about, you know, <clears throat> of how to adapt your lifestyle in a more creative way. Um, and I think this is a really interesting area to, for, for us as well as, as discussion points in, in the fact that it's something we're going to talk about later is very technical and is really hard to talk about on a podcast <laughs> because you end up either, I don't know, polarizing people or, um, or sounding like a loudmouth or sounding like a complete, you know, numpty. Whereas this is a much more, um, organic subject matter that you can talk around for forever can't you because i think do lectures are similar to this kind of thinking yeah. aren't they um i guess you could say ted lectures but that's much wider um uh gamut that it that it uses but um yeah i, th- I think it's definitely i'm going to keep my eye on this one because i think mm. there's some uh, there's already some interesting articles on there it's called open for ideas.org yeah, it's definitely one of those things I need to put all my reservations to one side and kind of read it with a an open mind because I can be overly sceptical about uh, those kind of things, I think. Uh, I think it's important that organisations embrace creative thinking. Um, I don't think that they should wear a fez on their head and goggles, <laughs> 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 to quote you. But yeah. uh, that's how you work, isn't it? Of course, yeah. I'm wearing a um, a dead beaver on my head. I would expect nothing less. It's hard to balance, though. So. Um, and, uh, well, they're blasting them around the countryside here now, aren't they? Now they've reintroduced them. <laughs> There's some guy who's uh, who's just he's just shooting as many as he can get hold of. Um, but, yeah, they're coming into his... Oh, is he some toffee-nosed idiot? They're coming into... They're eating all his trees. He's not happy about it. So he's is just, it because they're European beavers and he's uh is he a brexiter 
<laughs> Probably. Yeah. Uh, um, the next thing I've got is uh, an article from Atlas Obscura, and it's one of those kind of quirky little things, and you think, oh, I never knew that, and that's really quite cool. So it's uh, an article called Inside the New York Public Library's Last Secret Apartments. Um, and at the turn of the last century, so it's 1900, early 1900s, Andrew Carnegie gave New York $5 million, which was over $100 million, or would be worth over $100 million today, um, to create a citywide system of libraries. Um, and because they were heated by coal, they needed living tenants to look after them and tend to the, the furnace and, you know, kind of maintain the building. So these libraries all had apartments on the top, um, and some of them still exist. I think there's only 13 left now. Um, and this article has got sort of a beautiful sort of description of a couple of them and some amazing photographs. And, they're, you know, they'd be worth, you know, in Manhattan, you know, an absolute fortune. And, and these ones are all just decaying still above these public libraries. And they're, they're kind of like those kind of scenes from the the beginning of a, a horror film where someone moves into a, a decaying apartment and peels off a bit of wallpaper to find something written in blood. Um, but they they could be beautiful apartments because they get you know decent ceiling heights and big old windows and kind of plaster cornicing and you know beautiful um, period features. And yet they're just wasting away. Um, and there are plans for the libraries to convert some of them into kind of new spaces for uh, projects and uh, you know event spaces and things. But I just think that would be an amazing place if you could get hold of one of these apartments and and live in it. And what a better place to live than above a library? Be fab. Yeah, they're brilliant photos. I love these kind of lost place photographs. Yeah. They are really spooky, aren't they? Yeah. I think some of them were lived in up until sort of the 80s. So they haven't been, you know, empty for for decades and decades. But, yeah, really weird and sort of haunting little places. But fab. Love to live above the library. That'd be nice. The the Teddington Library is lovely, isn't it? It is. Um is that a? What, I'm just thinking. That's a Carnegie. Is that a Carnegie? Yeah, I was going to say. Is. Yeah, I'm going to quickly look. At that's that. why I was typing madly. I'm pretty sure I it see. is. Um, I don't know what he was doing funding over in London or very, very West London. Um, yeah, but maybe there's an apartment above there. Oh, I'll have to go have a peek. I see it quite often because it's opposite Pizza Express, <laughs> <laughs> which is also a very nice deco building, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't say anything. I'm pretty sure it is off the top. I of think my head. I've seen it above the door. That it's a, it says something about Carnegie. Yeah. So did they? Did he fund libraries across the world? Then I guess maybe he did. Um, we're talking about libraries. In your library, you need you need things in it, don't you? You got a book recommendation, John? Well, it's not a book recommendation, but it's um. I need to buy some new design books. Uh, I haven't really been reading anything about design recently. And um, there are some really, uh, really fascinating books out. And I've got this one. Uh, it's on it's a Lawrence King publication, which I have to say, Lawrence King publishing is they just publish brilliant books, don't they? They do. Yeah. Um, this was called the typography idea book. And this is through um, Studio Mister mentioned it on his He's got. I didn't realise he had a type site. Um, oh, a type token. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, lovely site. Yeah, yeah. really, a really uh, useful resource. Basically, just tracking all of the typography books that get published in the UK. Is that right? Am I assuming that? Yeah, um, I don't know. Actually, I think um, so. And this, yeah, this is called the Typography Idea Book: Inspiration from Fifty Masters, and it explores typographic um, logo types as puzzles, um, and it just looks fascinating all different types of styles from hand-drawn to um uh, photographic style you know so it's got the um the ransom note style the yeah. sex pistols one um yeah and it looks like a book i might actually stick in a stick in a basket and, and buy they, there's another one 
it looks like in the series called the graphic design idea book, yes. which is a, follows a similar trope. But I, I, I haven't I haven't heard of them before. Have you heard of those? No, I hadn't. Uh, they're, they're very reasonable as well. They're only th- thirteen quid. Yeah. Um, it's quite funny when you buy design books, kind of expressly for the purpose of you know inspiring you or bringing you up to date with stuff. Is the the fact that they're so um, uh, they date so quickly? You know, you, if you buy a you know, if I look at one of my books from you know two or three years ago, it's it's kind of very obviously of that time. Um, so I, I think I tend to buy these days. Um, more kind of classic older stuff that you kind of think isn't going to go out of fashion um, so Vignelli and I don't know Milton Glaser and whoever but it's it's. I think it's always good to continually to sort of top up your little visual reference library isn't it yeah I mean I've got millions of them and I never look at them though that's the only thing yeah <laughs> a, a lot of them I've just sort of appropriated as I've moved office to office and um and I sort of ended up with them because uh, our last when we merged obviously the the office we moved into had a lot of duplicates yeah um but I just don't get time to sit and read them and, and I think part of my problem is that the you know weekends and evenings it's not I'm not not into that kind of thing i'm yeah. done with it I, I don't know maybe i'm just not a good designer but i uh, i have other interests that um that are more i'm you've more got interested a life. in you've got a is life what it is. Well, yeah yeah but no it does look very good that um i might put that on my christmas list the last thing i've got news wise is um so i don't know where i saw this article probably on twitter um 12 maps that changed the world. Uh, and it's an article in the Atlantic magazine. Um, and we talked about maps before, you know, we both love maps and it's quite an interesting article looking at maps from Ptolemy's geography from 150 AD to kind of briefly touching on Google earth and virtual mapping. Um, but takes in, um, kind of a variety of different maps you know the map of Mundi and Mercator's world map um, and kind of political maps um, and it's, I, I love maps, I love seeing all these amazing pictures of them um, but it's quite nice to see like a, a little chronological list of kind of key points in the history of mapping um, that's a nice little article so I thought I'd that. That's on the Atlantic. Oh, it's 12, cool. ma- 12 <laughs> maps that change the world. Map of Mundi in there. Yeah. I, Which I didn't realise the Map of Mundi at the top, it's got um, the Garden of Eden. Yeah. As a, and right in the middle is Jerusalem, right? Is that? Yeah. 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 Um, interesting perspective on the world. Indeed. What would it be now? What's Google's map? Much more. Oh, is that Google? Is it Google Earth? Yeah, that Google Earth. Yeah, ah. that's all anybody ever used to do was was uh, just zoom out of it and then zoom into a point, and then that would be it, wouldn't it? And then quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I think, I don't. I haven't tended to use it that much recently, but um, I think they keep bringing out sort of little innovations, don't they? And you know, it's got real time weather satellite data on it and stuff, and it's it's always quite interesting when there's some disaster happening somewhere in the world and you can put it in context um hell of a bit of tech i assume at some point in the future it will become almost a live a live view of the world right down to street level you think yeah they'll probably you know you'll be able to uh sign up for some google account that'll give you free access to all their all their kit but in return they get to use free access they get to use all the data that you use all your photographs and bit of turn on your video camera on your phone and map things in real time um i i did miss i missed one of the i saw this ridiculous thing called the floating the floating cloud have you seen this <laughs> i don't think so right so this is if you are a hipster and you're taking a lot of interior shots of your office um 
and uh, and using that for your portfolio then you can use this to uh, to add to it it's um it's a magnetic cloud that sits on a piece of glass um that floats um up to 5 centimeters above the above the piece of glass um what why what it's, it's got a little light in it as well it looks like a piece of cauliflower on a mirror <laughs> i'll i'll send it to you hang on a yeah. sec um, I didn't put it on my list of things. So, what is its purpose? Is it a light? It's for it's for cool hipsters. I know, but is it? Um, is it? It's it combines innovative technologies, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, with a, st- uh, a light, a stormy cloud light, ah. yeah. and it uses magnetic components, allowing it to float up to five centimeters. Oh my word! Not it looks like a cauliflower. Yeah. I think if they designed it as a cauliflower light, that would be much more interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, Why is the cauliflower floating? We uh, don't know. Page not found. Oh, that is, it does look like a cauliflower. You're right. Oh, that's bloody ridiculous. It, why didn't they make it um, like a home server as well, so it could actually be your cloud? Oh yeah. And then the little flashes of lightning could be every time data streams to and from it. But in the photos, there's another cloud just in the corner. Is that like a Blair Witch thing? It's just facing the wall. It's so ashamed of being <laughs> that a cloud. Escaped. It's escaped. <laughs> Bizarre. Yeah, so go and buy it. It doesn't say how much it is. It's probably on... Oh, it, a lot. Is it on Kickstarter? Probably. So we're up to the main event now, Rob. <clears throat> we are. And how prepared uh, are you? Have you well, done? Have you, is are there? Can I see the workings underneath what you've done? You can, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we decided we were talking uh, on our walk and in the pub, uh, in the midst of our walk, about what we should talk about for our kind of main discussion on the podcast. And we've we've had a this little list of things that we've kind of meaning to pick up on and go back to certain things. Um, and we've decided to talk about grids and grids and ratios in design. Um, what they are, why we use them, if they're a help or a hindrance. Um, yeah. <laughs> See, you go then, John. Uh, right. Yeah, I, I think I might struggle here because uh, it's so hard to talk about something that's so visual. Um, so I want to go into the nitty gritty of what of why what they are and why why do we use them? I don't know what, mm. what's your what's your take on um, why do we need grids? Well, I think in the same way that uh, artists in the olden days and now I assume um, sought. Uh, sort of find kind of um, structure in the natural world. Um, I guess to explain things in a, in a world that was less enlightened. Um, and they saw structure and ratios and patterns in the world. And then they used those same ratios and patterns and systems in their paintings, I guess, to try and recreate the in their eyes, the perfection of creation, didn't they? So like the golden ratio, you know, is a, is a ratio that is, and the Fibonacci sequence, which they're quite similar, um, is something that is found in nature in the way that plants, uh, plant leaves and twigs divide um, in the shells of sea creatures. Um, so I think seeing for those artists of yesteryear um seeing those patterns sort of in the hand of god and then using them in their art was a way to get close to god or to create something that could um sort of challenge the perfection of creation what do you think sounds good to me Oh, excellent. No, that's that, that's um and so then that translated into like you say uh, away from art into the real world into well into buildings. Yeah. structures 
um, and then eventually into print. Yeah, I think there's always going to be a need to see form kind of categorized and um, divided in a in a an aesthetic way, isn't there? You know, whether it's you know some book formats that just kind of feel and look nicer than others, or you know. Uh, the shape of a poster, you know, depending on its proportions, can be better or worse than another, regardless of the content. Um, so I think there's all artists and designers and scientists and architects and engineers are always going to seek those kind of patterns, I think. But I think because even if it just reinforces a feeling they might have about aesthetics, it's comforting to know that the way they view the world is um, set upon some foundations that can be um, quantified. Right. So we're taking uh, nature proportions from nature. And my question is why are those proportions? Well, firstly, we should really talk about what are those proportions? So the golden ratio is, um, uh, and the Fibonacci sequence are very similar. They're not exactly the same, are they? They're not exactly the same, but they're, they're you know, in uh, in action, they look they create very similar patterns. Yeah. So Fibonacci is uh, you the so it's the addition of the two preceding sequ- uh, numbers in yeah, the sequence. Every, every so, number is the sum so of the one, two. one, one, two, three, five etc etc and and eventually if you draw those as rectangles you create a spiral like a shell yes um whereas on the golden ratio is um uh, a plus b i'm not reading this i am reading this uh where a is is a uh, a as a is to b is to b <laughs> yeah so it's the ratio no. of the shape is the same as the sum of the ratios of the two shapes or something yeah and if you take if you make that into a rectangle and you take a square out of that rectangle it becomes exactly the same proportions yes which is how you get your origami bit of paper out of an a4 sheet yeah (laughs) which is just (laughs) astonishing isn't it yeah so that those two uh those those two sort of forms of creating a grid and uh the third one which is the rule of thirds which is a much more simplified Mm. Um, system which is still quite similar but you basically divide your rectangle into into thirds and then where the where you get the four intersections those are focal points yeah um so if you position items in those four focal points uh they are much more aesthetically or visually pleasing to the eye now those are the those are the those kind of the the, the calculation of grid why <laughs> I don't. Why? Why are they? Why do they feel better to the human eye? Is it? Is it because we've taken that? They are originally from nature. Did the original painters know that there there were these mathematics involved, or did they just copy nature? Um, no, I think they did know. I think it was you know in the early Renaissance. Um, certainly, they knew the the kind of science and maths behind it didn't i I assume the greeks did as well because i know it was in greek the golden ratio was used in greek architecture as well right um and they you know they were big uh believers in uh kind of the the science of nature weren't they the greeks so any patterns they would have seen in nature would have been quite important um but as to why they they've become important i don't know maybe it's just because it's it's astonishing that nature can conjure up these incredible um, repetitive patterns. Um, so kind of mimicking that seems, you know, stealing from nature. If it's, you know, if it's good enough for God, um, it's good enough for Da Vinci. Um, I mean, I guess there's something fundamental about these ratios which when you use them to create a composition helps to create a composition that isn't static and flat 
and dull. You know, if you just, like the rule of thirds, you know, if you obey that kind of framework of using those where the, the thirds cross as focal points, you know, it offsets everything. So you don't have something stuck right in the middle of a page uh, or in the middle of a canvas, which if you did would, would be just very static, wouldn't it? I guess because you're creating negative space or visual tension, aren't you? Yeah. By, by moving it off center. Yeah. I, I just, I looked, I was looking for what is the science behind why? And it, these are all just methodologies. They're not rule of thumb. You know, they're not proven, are they, in any way that a drawing done, you know, using the, or a photograph using uh, the rule of thirds will definitely be more popular than a photograph set to the center or, or will it will, will be people and why are people drawn to that it's really well, fascinating I, isn't it i guess there's there's a study to be done there on photography because it's so it's much more modern i think it's trickier to do that with sort of like the old masters or renaissance painting because most of the quality that we attribute to those works of art i think is derived from the fact that they were painted by those painters uh, and maybe that's where, you know, the, the the respect for these ratios and grids comes from. You know, if Da Vinci hadn't have used them, if Bellini hadn't have used them, if Piero della Francesca hadn't have used them, if the ancient Greeks hadn't built their temples according to the golden ratio and had used some other, um, some other ratio or some other technique, then, you know, maybe the golden ratio wouldn't, be seen as a, a something that created you know something that was aesthetically pleasing maybe it is all just history maybe if the if the greeks maybe it was if it was the greeks that first kind of used this maybe if they'd have had you know another another idea then we wouldn't be having this conversation now do you think it's worth a a, a good project would be to take some of the masters and recrop them and to then see what people's reactions were you know, in a kind of experiment, see, 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 see what their reactions are when Just you crop them all them. to an Instagram square. Yeah, everything yeah. should be square. Yeah, it would be interesting. It'd be fascinating to see how it would change the composition, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I know, I know that everyone, you know, was probably shouting at the. <laughs> saying yeah it's obvious isn't it but my question is just why why you know what is so appealing about nature about um that sort of repetitive shape it's it's absolutely fascinating and where and where you can see why they attributed that to a uh, a greater power in yeah. uh, in renaissance times and why that when they were trying to reflect god's work as it were um they turned to nature um, and then reflected that in the paintings. So it was almost like a divine intervention, wasn't it? Uh, mm. You could say that Dürer, his paintings of the grass, and I don't know what the compositions were. It was Dürer, wasn't it, right? Yeah. talking about. Yeah. Those amazing, super hyper-realistic pictures. Where did they come from? Because he, he, he was convinced, wasn't he, that he was being passed that by God. Yeah. He was a bit well, bonkers. He was. But yeah, strange because it's a, uh, almost the antithesis of the grid, though, isn't it? The way he drew that um, what's it called? A piece of a great piece of turf, isn't it? That yeah, circular uh, drawing. Um, you know, there's nothing grid-like or kind of manufactured about it. No, but I think there's a kernel of a really good debate in there, isn't there? Or mm. a really good exploration of why why things are pleasing and why. Uh, and is it a kind of um a sheep like following that we 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 get used to patterns and therefore we see them and that makes us happy and it makes us comfortable to look at them i'm sure there is i mean there's a whole thing about type isn't there that you know we read best what we read most um which has got you know an element of truth about it and i think that probably applies to art and aesthetics as well and i think when instagram first came along i was certainly guilty of I was saying about Instagram, well, you know, why have they made it bloody square? That's like the worst format you can possibly have for a, an image or a, a photograph. And yet now, you know, everyone takes pictures in a square format and, you know, no one seems to cry about it. 
Yeah, people just get used to it, and I guess they frame things in a slightly different way, or at least the good photographers do. Um, frame things in a different way for Instagram, and it and it works. So, I mean, but th- you could say that's on it. That does have a grid. It's just a basic three by three, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, um, grid. So grids aren't just in paintings, and they are ev- everywhere. And one of the most interesting forms that they take is uh, is the American sort of. I guess they they existed before grid grid like cities existed before um, the great expansion of nineteenth century America, but it kind of it's where you go back to to look yeah. to see where where it started. And New York is a classic example of that. But actually, if you look at New York's grid system, it's not. I kind of off the top of my head just think it's square. But I was looking today; it's not, is it? It's it's long yeah. rectangles. It is, yeah. Um, uh, there are certain uh, there are certain bits where it's. Uh, more square isn't it and then it kind of becomes really rectangular um but i think some cities are uh, entirely grid-like um in america i think that's due to do you follow the instagram the jefferson grid no which is the way uh, the americans at the time of jefferson uh divided up the land of the kind of great uh frontiers um, and it was divided up into one square mile plots. Uh, and the Jefferson Grid Instagram account is aerial photography of all these different one square mile plots. Oh, right. Well, when, all... I, when, when I went to Austin uh, and I went to the capital there, that that was they that was a one square mile plot mm. that was divided up and sold in six hundred or something like that plots. Yeah, uh, it's just easy to do, wasn't it? And you could just yeah. say, right, you all get the same. It's a bit like how this village was made up here. That yeah. was just. Uh, cut into square plots and sold off and it makes it easy and democratic doesn't it yeah um, it also means that when you know they want to move administration or any any kind of thing like that it's really easy to do I think that um, Canberra's built like that isn't it that it's just an easy way Milton Keynes or yes. whatever l- large administrative centres it makes it much easier to manage um, but yeah, the American grid system, um, is, it works, it, but we don't get that kind of setup in the UK, do we? I mean, can't, can't think of, I mean, Milton Keynes maybe a little bit. I guess Milton Keynes does. I think that the interesting thing about that grid system when it comes to cities is that it helps navigation. So, you know, you have streets that go left to right, east to west and avenues that go north to south. So it's really easy to navigate and to to kind of work out where somewhere is in a city if it uses that grid system. You know, houses can be at the corner of whatever avenue and 33rd Street or whatever. And that's a grid that helps you navigate in real life. Um, And I guess a grid in design can help you navigate um, that piece of design, whether it's a website or a poster. You think there's a, a correlation there? Well, not not so much because I think that the grid should, in design, should um, not be exposed to... No, but it gives, I don't mean it in such a literal sense, but it gives form to something that perhaps allows you to make sense of it. Oh, yeah. And I think it it definitely nudges people in the right direction. I think that, though, if you ask most people um, if they thought that a piece, you know, a, a, a newspaper, a newspaper is the worst example of it, but uh, a, a poster or something like that, um, whether that had uh, an underlying structure to it, they would say, no, it doesn't. And then if you overlaid the grid that the designer possibly had used to design the, you know, to design yeah. it, they would be amazed at, at the sort of the interlocking structure that goes behind thinking yeah. about a poster. Um, whereas if you took a poster designed by somebody who doesn't use grids uh, or uh, was a student and hadn't really discovered grids or whatever, um, it wouldn't feel right to the eye um, if, you, you know, if you've been making posters like that for a long time. But I'm not sure yeah. whether the general public will really notice that. You only have to sit on a tube and look at the posters above there to see the difference between a quality typesetter and a not so good one. And it pains me to look at some of the ones, you know, the, for the back rub kind of gel or whatever it is that you see above the yeah. uh, the tubes. And then the really good ones where it's been, I don't know, 
Jack Daniels or you know the the you know beautifully typeset um, adverts. Um, it, the the difference is massive, but does it have that much effect on on I don't know people who who aren't looking out for that kind of thing? Well, maybe that you know they don't they're not going to realise why, but I would imagine they would they would see the difference between a good a well designed poster and a badly designed poster, wouldn't they? Yeah, uh, certainly, a, you know, a good poster is is likely to be more effective. Yeah, you'd you'd hope so, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> you would, otherwise. What's but the but point? going back to, I mean, I'm just being obtuse here. But the the um, going back to the the grid thing, I find gridded cities. I, I'm not from a grid gridded kind of city place. I find yeah. it really hard to navigate. I find it. I find it really confusing. I. I I um I get muddled up where I am and uh and I get bored <laughs> of it. I like London or you know or towns in the UK or Europe where you know you have to get a kind of you, you have to almost memorize a certain pattern to where you want yeah. to go. Um I find it much more interesting and engaging. Um well, that's the age isn't it because most uh cities in the old world have have grown up organically from from a hamlet upwards into the metropolis that they are now whereas a lot of the the cities in the states are have been planned from the outset or at least from very early on in their um, existence have been planned and like we said the easiest way to plan something is to build it around a grid yeah the only difficulty they have is obviously if they then add in between uh, numbered if you've got a numbered or lettered grid system and you yeah. want to insert something, you end up with the uh, the Harry Potter yes. and a half. A half. And they, they do have that in some cities, I think. They in do. America. I think there's something quite cool about that. <laughs> All my pies are arriving. Ooh. Thank you. That's a good looking pie. Uh, right, sorry, carry on. So in design, um, designers use grids. Um, to lay out, lay things out with uh, some do and some don't, but some people are naturally good at that kind of that layout. Mm. Um, and I I use them because I need it as like a crutch. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, yeah, that was the, that was my whole thing. Was we don't we don't expose them, but there's a growing sort of trend in exposing the grid. Um, and I wonder whether that's maybe driven by, I mean, which you you can get onto because I know you've got a particular bugbear about the, the, the thing that I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is the web now has um, uh, drawn attention back to grid systems. I think that they had died off a lot. Um, I think, you know, obviously there was a, a resurgence in the 50s with uh, Helvetica and um, new, new typography. Um, what's that book called? It's Joseph Muller Brockman, isn't it? Yes, uh, which kind of like reinvigorated uh, the grid in print, and um, that then died. I think died off in the eighties, seventies, uh, and eighties, with a lot of um, people just working off, you know, without any grid whatsoever and quite randomly. Mm. Um, and then I think the web has brought that back quite a lot. The grid, because we are, you know, the web is we're talking about fixed widths, um, flexible. Um, widths as well so you have to have an adaptable grid that divides down in chunks or yeah. percentages or whatever so people are much more um obsessed with that and i think that's brought interest back to the grid um and so we're now seeing a lot of graphic design with the grid on it and the grid is being exposed so it's being shown um yeah uh, I think like Metro probably started, you know, really pushed that one, which is Metro is the, the windows, which became windows eight um, and yeah. the tiling kind of system, yeah. uh, which is a kind of, you know, if you took those containers away, um, that was, that would look like a normal printed page. Um, but mm. because they're contained in those little tiny squares, it's very, um, very composed and rather arch, I think, but, but a lot of people have, um, have jumped onto that kind of layout, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. But now people are moving on even, and designers are moving on even further, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, this has been happening for a while. Um, Every time there's a rebrand or every time a new logo is designed for a a company, 
uh, it gets shown as, you know, they show a, a black version and a reversed out version and a full color version. And they show, they show it in use and on a tote bag and on a t-shirt and on the van. And they, nowadays they nearly always show it with this grid overlaid as if to say, look at the majesty of the maths and geometry we use to create this logo. Um, and nine times out of 10, they're talking complete bollocks because it doesn't really fit and it's been post-rationalized um, and, you know, just overlaid. And I, d- I don't know why they do this. I don't know if it's because um, they they do it to try and justify the length of time or effort they've put into something or whether it is to show the layman that this is a great logo because look at it. It's, it's formed out of all these different shaped circles, these different sized circles or look at the angles we've used or look, it's, it's a, we've used the, the golden ratio grid to, to draw this logo. And you know, you haven't at all. You've just squashed it to make it fit, to make it look like it. Um, and even, um, very recently, Design Studio redesigned the Deliveroo um, food delivery company, and they did a uh, they did the whole thing a website and an app and livery for their delivery drivers, um, which is fab. I really like the design, and they created a little kangaroo icon, um, and it's quite a good little geometric kangaroo's head um, works quite well. And then they showed it as part of the kind of rollout of this thing. They showed the this kangaroo's head with with all these angles and lines uh, superimposed on it. It's like, well, that tells us nothing. You know, wh- what is it saying about your design process that you, you're showing that there, one of those angles is six degrees and another one is 12? I, you know, I, it adds nothing to the to what you've produced, and in the design community, I think everyone just thought you dicks. What what, what you're trying to do? Are you trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes and make it, you know, something that it isn't? Um, and so many companies have done it lately. You know, when Twitter redesigned their little bird icon, you know, they they overlaid that with loads of little circles and things and people have tried to do it for the Apple logo and you know you can kind of make anything fit if you waste enough time doing it but you know what's the point I think I think it must be to to just try and justify the decisions that they've made you know someone just basically sketched out these logos you know and that you refine them and you tidy them up and yes you bring in a bit of maths when you're kind of trying to make things proportionate and fit with the the logo type and things but really if there's anyone out there who starts designing a logo and draws out a golden ratio spiral and they need to have a bloody word with themselves <laughs> well, can you sell this riles me <laughs> Uh, I think that we've sandwiched the show because I think we were talking about uh, we've sandwiched the show with uh, an interesting food for thought in the fact that the design industry is often accused of being a navel gazing kind of pretentious industry. And I think that we've I think that people are tired of that now and we need to start being a little bit more honest about how we show our work. If our work works for the customer and works for their customers, then that work is valid and we don't need to then validate that to our peers. We don't need to show, you know, a designer has seen a million designs. It doesn't need to be, um, you know, polished and buffed uh, post launch uh, just for the design community's consumption. Just put the logo out, you know, let it, let it do its work. Um, I, I I'm in total agreement with you, um, and I think that uh, I think it was Mike Sullivan as uh, was tweeting with um, another chap today, and they were discussing you know why does design agencies why are they filled with oh, yeah, pic- of photographs of um, of their of their offices and their, fur- and their, their furniture their bikes their, their dogs yeah. well 
I I I totally agree with that, and I think you know we've we've spoken about it before. Is like you know what's your portfolio site? It should literally be, and that's what I've been moving to over the last year is just a page of what have you done. And I that's wonder it. if they do that because people who are commissioning design wouldn't necessarily know a good design if it slapped them in the face. And what they're seeking is the look and feel of the company that's going to be able to produce great design for them. I think it, I think also it's fundamentally that designers are terrible clients and they, uh, the, the, you know, half the time when you do your own website, you haven't got a brief, you haven't discussed it with, you know, your end, your end user, i.e. your customers, you're kind of yeah. making the thing for yourself that you think shows you off in the best light. And most designers are either supremely arrogant or really, really shy. And so they'll do one of the two, you know, two sort of, uh extreme ends of it they'll either really really show off and uh and yeah you'll get the um the grid overlay and the and the uh the potted plants and the concrete uh kitchen cabinet uh kitchen yeah. you know whatever and um and then on the other one you'll just get like a, a contact form <laughs> yeah. that'll be it um yeah. but yeah it's it is it's definitely uh it's definitely wake up time for the design community i think to to just think a little bit more smart about how they present their work because if you've presented your work and you've sold it you don't need to do anything else just no. just let it just let it out into the world and and let people appreciate it for what it's doing the task it's doing which is not a piece of static art that needs to be then justified with a with a a curly spiral drawn over it yeah sure don't tell <laughs> So yeah, so grids. <laughs> so yeah, I think we got we got through that quite well actually because yeah, I, I was really I was really dreading talking about grids. I mean, uh, yeah, grids are pretty pretty dry subject in terms of graphic design, but I think you know they're everywhere in the world. Um, we love structure, and yeah. it's just about how much do you expose to people and how much do you hide away, um, and and what. You know what is this? My my real what I really take away from today is, and and something that I'll explore further is what is the science behind why you know the psychology of why we like things. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating area to get into. Absolutely. Have you got a? Do you want to go straight to pies? Have you got a website of the week? I've we haven't done quick, one for ages. Quick website of the week, which uh, I think Richard Weston pointed out to me on Facebook or Instagram, um, and it's called the Public Domain Review. Um, and it is a website which, an online journal, um, which explores the curious and compelling works from history, uh, art, literature, and ideas. Uh, and in particular, they look at stuff that is now in the public domain, so out of copyright material. Uh, and it's just a really interesting site. So they they have um, articles, maps, uh, little film clips, things about books images and it's just bizarre lots of bizarre quirky stuff um so uh, click on images and there's pages from an illustrated catalog of period ornaments and it's it's just um pages and pages of those kind of plaster ornamentations that you'd get in like a georgian house or something um or you know they've got cartoons from the russia russian japanese war um from 1904 and just yeah it's just another one of those sites that's an absolute um rabbit hole to to get lost in oh yeah i'm loving that yeah, yeah. love Fab it. stuff i love the layout as well it's great yeah the the image that um richard tweeted or facebook's or whatever was two naked blacksmiths hammering at an anvil so i don't know why that grabbed my attention but um it did so that was, that's that's your tattoo isn't it <laughs> yeah um so that's the public domain review.org well worth a gander well i'm going to finally get this one out into the open it's um it's hey-siri.io now there's no real guide to what you can do in siri on yep. the, uh, on apple site it's pretty rubbish actually their help thing this is a full site um covering every single possible thing you could ever say to this the thing that doesn't understand me talking, um, it. but it's got some great useful things on it. You know, maths and I've started using it for maths. I find it really handy uh, on the desktop. Um, 
you know, just, you know, working out margins and all sorts of things like that. Um, But yeah, it's got absolutely every setting and it's a really beautifully designed website. I'm not sure who's who's made it, but um, they've done a damn good job of it. Uh, And you can search for different functions and stuff. Trouble is that Siri doesn't really work very well. (laughs) That's my review. I mean, I think I'm I'm keener on Siri, even though I don't use it that much. Um, I think I'm keener on it than you are. I use it to... to, um, set reminders and things and i love the fact that you know you can set it to you know remind me to do something when i get home which is very useful ah. yeah I know, I'm, I'm trying to force myself to use it but it always goes horribly wrong especially for you know adding uh dates and um you know events and things it just it just doesn't work or i'm running and i do something and then i'll end up calling the last number that i've dialed um which is never good and it yeah. never it never recognises who my wife is or any relations. It always gets that wrong. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, that's that. Um, that. It's pie time. It is pie time. Have you finished uh, your beer yet? Have you started on another one? No, no, no. I'm still on the same beer. I've been drinking it very slowly um, due to all the medication I'm on. Uh, my pie is a chicken and mushroom pie from Sean's Butchers in Hampton. Um, and it's a quite good deep um, pie, flaky pastry. Um, and the disturbing thing about it is not the way it looks or the anything about it. It's how cheap it was. It was only one pound thirty, and that wasn't like that's sale in my pies. budget. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's, you know, it's a a standard chicken and mushroom pie. Quite crispy pastry, um, big chunks of chicken, slightly gelatinous, uh, sort of creamy gravy, but it's not bad. It's a good six, which isn't bad for one pound thirty. Yeah, I, I've got a um, a pork apple and cider pork pie. I've got a bit of an, a problem with the naming of this pie. It's so you know, so much pork in it. They named it twice. It's by a company called Tottle. Uh, I think it's from Sainsbury's and it's uh, a st- imagine a, just a standard pork pie with a bit of rice paper with the letter A on top of it, which I'm guessing stands for apple. Mm. Um, uh, it's got it hasn't got any jelly in it, but I can see jelly in between. Uh, it's quite coarsely cut. Um, so I'm going to go in. Hmm. It's not bad. Yeah. Um, pastry is a little bit overbaked. So it's a little bit bitter, but that is quite goes quite well with the apple. The apple's quite strong in there, and the pork is under you know under seasoned, I think, but not a bad pie. I'll give it yeah. a six. Okay, that's not bad. A good solid week. So, um, well, we should draw it to an end. We managed to uh, eke that one out. I was I was dreading uh, talking about grids. <laughs> No, that was quite the, good. The more I looked into it, the more I realised that I knew nothing about it. Well, same here. But I guess we both use them and rely upon them and we see them in use. So you can talk about anything if you've kind of been there and done that, I guess. <laughs> Particularly if it riles you. Yeah. No, it's good to get a bit of riling on board. Yeah. I'll uh, think of something else next week to rile us both. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not difficult these days. <laughs> Well, it was lovely as ever talking yeah. to you, John. Hopefully by um, by next Thursday when we record the next episode, all my aches and pains will have gone away. Yeah, I hope you make a good recovery and that your mouth gets a bit better. Thank you. I'll speak to you uh, next week. Will do. All right, have a good weekend. Take care. Cheerio. Bye. Sequence stars were no good for making carpet in this life.